Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Follow Me. All right, so one of the most important questions that anybody could ever ask is this. Who is Jesus? Now I'm wondering this week, if somebody were to ask you that question, who is Jesus? I wonder if you know how to answer that question correctly. There were some believers that went out on the streets of New York City and they asked that very question to a variety of different people. Here's the result, check it out. Historical figure? I don't know. <laughs> I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't, I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed, like I'm not gonna say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God and it was hard to relate to him. But I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. So many different answers to the question, who is Jesus? My favorite had to be the guy with the pigeons. <laughs> you know, if David Copperfield lived in the first century, he'd be Jesus. That is a bird brain statement, if I've ever heard of it in my life. And so, in order to get the right answer to the question, who is Jesus, we have to go to the right source, God's word. That's what we're gonna do today. We have our Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, the inspired, Gospel of Mark, and today we're gonna to discover what the true identity of Jesus really is. So last week we left off at verse 26, today we pick it up in verse 27, and it says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, here's the question, who do people say that I am? And so let's get our, our bearings uh, as far as geography is concerned. The Lord has been in the area of Bethsaida, which is that little city at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And so he and his disciples turned north and they began to go up the Jordan River all the way up about 25 miles to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which lie at the foothills of beautiful Mount Hermon. And so if you go with us to Israel next May, or if you go with us on one of our trips every two years, we will take you up to that area 
We'll have a devotion, accessory of Philippi, and we'll talk about Mount Hermon, which by the way, next week, I'm excited. We're gonna talk about the transfiguration of Christ, which happened on Mount Hermon. And so Jesus turns uh, up to Caesarea Philippi, and when they arrived in that area, he and his disciples, the Lord asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples replied in verse 28, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And so just like we saw in the video, just like today, everybody's got an opinion about who Jesus is. It was the same 2,000 years ago. The Lord says, who do people say that I am? The disciples answer, well, some uh, are saying that you're John the Baptist alive from the dead. We remember Herod <laughs> who chopped John's head off, believe that. Other people are saying that you're um, Elijah, who's supposed to come before the Messiah comes as is prophesied in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, at least in our Old Testament. Others are saying that you're one of the prophets. So everybody had an opinion back then. Everybody still has an opinion today. Now, concerning the opinions of some of the world religions, concerning the opinions of some of the cults of today, check it out. Islam believes that Jesus was a highly respected prophet. Hinduism believes that Jesus was an avatar or a spiritual teacher. Judaism, depending on who you talk to, there's two different views, believes that Jesus was either a good Jewish rabbi who was misunderstood or a false messiah. And then when you look at, and by the way, uh, Buddhism, another world religion, Jesus is not even on their radar. He's not part of their worldview at all. Some of the cults, the Jehovah Witnesses, the people who knock on your door on Saturday, they believe that Jesus was Michael the Archangel before he came to the earth. And then the most bizarre of all, the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, believe that Jesus was the first spirit being created by the Father and Mother in heaven. And so when you look at the world religions, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, listen, ladies and gentlemen, they do not believe that Jesus was God incarnate. Islam, our Muslim community, Hinduism, Judaism, they do not believe that Jesus died on a cross to atone for our sins. The Jehovah Witnesses, um, they also do not believe that Jesus was God incarnate. They believe that Jehovah created an angel and then that angel created everything else. They believe Jesus was and is a created being. And by the way, there is no false doctrine that's new. These false doctrines are just recycled from back in history. And so if you know anything about the Arians, and you know anything about the Nicene Creed, you know that's where the Jehovah Witnesses get their false doctrine that Jesus is a created being. Mormon leaders not only believe that Jesus was the first spirit being created by the Father and Mother in heaven, but later when it came to the creation of Jesus' body, some Mormon leaders have taught that Jesus' body was created through a physical union between Elohim, God, and Mary. And so if anybody ever tells you 
that any of these religions or any of these cults believe in Jesus, here's the question you need to ask them. Which Jesus? Is it the false Jesus of religion? Or is it the true Jesus of the Bible? Ladies and gentlemen, only the Jesus of the Bible can save our souls. He's the true Jesus. And so don't, don't just accept the fact, well, they believe in Jesus. The Bible talks about how there is another Jesus, a false Jesus, and that Jesus, of course, cannot save anybody. And so just like today, back in the first century, everybody had an opinion about Jesus. Well, some say that he's John the Baptist alive from the dead. Other people are saying that he's one of the prophets. Other people are saying that he's Elijah who's gonna come before the Messiah. And so Jesus decides to make this more personal. Look at verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? By the way, he's been asking that question for 2,000 years, and I believe by his spirit in this room today, he's asking all of you and me the same exact question. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to say, well, my mom and dad went to church, so I'm a Christian, or my uncle was a deacon, or my dad was a preacher. No, listen to the words of Jesus this afternoon. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, God love him, <laughs> Peter answered, you're the Christ. And, and I gotta put my hands together and say, woohoo, yes, Peter, you did it. You got the answer right when so many people get the answer wrong. Now, Mark only shares the abbreviated answer of Peter. He said, you are the Christ. Matthew's gospel shares the whole answer of Peter. He said, you are the Christ. You guys finish the rest of it, please the son of the living God. There's your truth right there. And by the way, the church, the true church is built on that statement right there. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is the son of the living God. He is not a created being. He is the eternal God incarnate. And so why did Peter get the answer right while so many other people get the answer wrong. Well, Jesus tells us in his answer to Peter in the very next verse. Peter, I mean, Jesus is pretty excited about Peter's answer. And so Jesus says, well, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood, everybody say flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you, here it is, but my Father who is in heaven. Why was Peter right? when so many other people are wrong concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. Here's why, because Peter got his answer straight from the heart of the Father in heaven. Everybody else gets their answer from flesh and blood. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to something as important as the identity of Jesus Christ, I would rather get my answer from the uncreated eternal God than from frail human beings. It's God's answer. He's my son. He's the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Now, some people say, well, why does this matter so much? If you're with me, say amen right here. Amen. Why does this matter so much? Listen, it's because our eternal destination depends on our answer to this question. 
I mean, where are you gonna be a billion years from now? You know, some people think, oh, I'm just gonna live my own life, do whatever I wanna do. Well, guess what? You're gonna get old. You're gonna get frail. And 10 out of 10 people don't make it off this earth alive. <laughs> so here's my question. Where are you gonna be 200 years from now? Where are you gonna be 1,000 years from now, a billion years from now? This is so important because our eternal destiny depends on our answer to this incredible, vital question, who is Jesus Christ? Check out what Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day who did not believe that he was the Messiah. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, that I am the Messiah, that I'm the son of God, that I'm the, in, the, in the context of John 8, I'm the light of the world, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, it's a shame to me that people right now are dying and they're going to hell and they're paying for their own sins. You know why that's a shame? That they're dying faster than I can click my fingers? You know why that's such a shame that they're paying for their own sins in hell? Because God became a man and hung on a cross and already paid for their sins. But they said no to the gift that God offers them. That's the bad news. The good news is that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and if you believe that his death on the cross was sufficient payment for all your sins, and if you'll receive Jesus as your savior and Lord, he will absolutely forgive all of your sins, no questions asked, past, present, and future, and when your body dies, your spirit will immediately go to be with him in heaven on the authority of God's word. Verse 30, and so he strictly, so Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now this causes some people to scratch their heads. Why in the world would Jesus tell the disciples not to tell anybody right now that he's the Christ, the son of the living God? Aren't we supposed to spread the good news? It's all about timing. You see, at the end of his, um, well, after his death, his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus tells these same guys, go into all the world and preach the gospel to, the, to all creatures, okay? So it's timing. Why did Jesus right now say, hey, uh, what Peter just said, just keep that to yourselves for a while. Here's why. Jesus knew the temperature, the political temperature in Israel. He knew there were thousands of zealous Jews who absolutely hated the Romans and absolutely hated the Roman occupation of Israel at that time around 31, 32 AD. You see, those of you who know history, 63 BC, General Pompey the Great goes into Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem and Judea becomes part of the Roman Republic. That was, a, that was um, 63 BC. Fast forward 95 or so years, and here we are in the Gospel of Mark, and the Jews have had it up here, up to here with the Romans. They hate the Romans. They hate the occupation of Rome over them. They wanna be free. And so if they hear, hey, the Messiah has come, some of them would rally around Jesus and try to force him to become king. They will wanna take up arms and rebel against Rome. 
And the reason I know that's true is because after Jesus fed the 5,000 men in Bethsaida, John's gospel tells us that that crowd, the crowd that he just fed, that crowd wanted to make him, force him to become king. And if you know John chapter six, verse 15, you know when Jesus knew their intentions, their political agenda, he withdrew to the mountains. And so the Lord was not interested in giving into the zealots political agenda for him. The Lord was not interested in taking up arms against Rome. He had more important things to do, like go to a cross and die for our sins, not just the sins of the Jews, but even the sins of the hated Romans, because he loves the Romans, he loves the Jews, he loves the Gentiles, and he loves you today. Aren't you glad that he didn't give in to someone's political agenda and he went to the cross and died and rose again? That's our Jesus. He's our hero. And so, look at verse 31 now. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again, whatever that means. And he said this plainly. And so Peter just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus just lauded Peter's answer as coming straight from the father. And now the disciples are very excited. And the reason they're excited is because the disciples, like most Jews in the first century, they knew what their Bible, we call it the Old Testament, they knew what their Bible prophesied about the coming Messiah. For example, in the sixth century BC, okay, so this is over 500 years before Christ, Daniel has a vision. And Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a who? Son of man, it's the Messiah. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, that's all people and nations and languages should serve him. That's the whole world. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so the disciples knew many passages like that in their Bible that prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he is going to conquer, he's gonna rule over the world. And so Peter just said, you're that person. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the disciples are excited because they're thinking, Jesus is gonna take over the world and we're gonna reign with him. We're gonna sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so right now their heads are becoming like these big balloons and Jesus goes over with a pin and pops that balloon. And he says, guys, I have to suffer. I have to be rejected. I have to die and I have to rise again. And they did not understand what this meant. And so all this talk about suffering, all this talk about death, didn't sit very well with Peter. So Peter decides right now, I need to set Jesus straight. How do you think that's gonna work out? All right, so look at verse 32. By the way, if there's any pastors or elders here, it's really hot. I could change my sermon and talk about hell. Or we could turn the air up. So maybe we could turn the air up if you're in charge here today in this service. All right, so verse 32. If you're looking at verse 32, say amen. 
All right, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. What? Come on, Peter, of all the crazy things, dumb things that you've done in your life, I think this is the worst. You're going to rebuke the Messiah? Who do you think you are, Peter? Matthew tells us what Peter said to Jesus, and I quote, Jesus says, I have to suffer, I have to die. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. <laughs> suffer, die, no way. Can you see Peter putting his chest out? I'll protect you, <laughs> right? Have you guys ever said something dumb and then 30 seconds later, you wish you could take it back? That's exactly how Peter's feeling right now, especially when he looks at Jesus' face and Jesus does not look happy. All right, look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why is Jesus being so strong here? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, of all the things that you ever want Jesus to say about you, this is the worst. Satan, wow. So why is Jesus being so strong here? If you're with me, say amen again. Okay, follow me, here's why. Because the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the Messiah was predetermined before the creation of the material universe. Before there was ever a universe, before there was ever matter, the, in the eternal councils of the Trinity, the decision was made that the Christ would come, take on human flesh, live a perfect life, go to a cross, atone for the sins of the world, die, be buried, and rise three days later. And anybody, including Peter, who goes against that foreordained plan of God is an adversary, which means, which is what Satan's name means, the adversary. And so Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You're not seeing things from God's point of view. You're seeing things from man's point of view. Peter, stop thinking like a human being. I need you to start thinking like God thinks. And so Peter, right, he goes from being a messenger of God to a messenger of Satan in just a matter of minutes. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? He got that information from the Father. He's a messenger of God. And then just a few minutes later, you're never gonna suffer, you're never gonna die, you're never gonna rise again, whatever that means. I'm gonna protect you. And now all of a sudden, that impulse comes from Satan in just a matter of minutes. Now, if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to you and me. Peter's a believer, okay? So you and I, if we're not careful, can go from being messengers of God to messengers of Satan just like that. You see why it's so important that we're spirit-filled and we're dependent on the Lord, not just once a day, but every minute of every day, every second of every minute? And so here, here, here's my encouragement to you. 
All right. If you're feeling passionate about something like Peter felt passionate that Jesus is not going to the cross. If you're feeling passionate about something, don't just blurt stuff out like Peter. If you're feeling passionate about something, zip your lips. And then here's what you do. If you're feeling that, that fervor, that passion, just stop, breathe, think, pray. And then when you're ready to accurately represent the Lord, then unzip it and start to talk. Don't just, you know, when you're feeling passionate about something, put your hands on your hips or swing in your head. Well, he, well, she, and just start giving somebody the what for. Listen, if you do that, you're a messenger of Satan and you're gonna do a lot of harm. Take the hands off the hip, zip the lips, go for a walk, get in the spirit and accurately represent the Lord. Listen, Jesus can rebuke us just like he can rebuke Peter. And I do not want to be called Satan, amen? Man, and so look at verse 34 now. And calling the crowd to him. This is interesting. He's calling the crowd. Hey, everybody, in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, come on, gather around. So he calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, here's our main verse of the afternoon. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, if we wanna come after him, we have to do three things. So if you wanna follow Jesus, number one, you and I, we have to deny ourselves. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Okay, so what did Jesus mean when he said the word self? Okay, here, here's a great definition, John MacArthur. The self of which Jesus is speaking is the natural, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed self that is at the center of every fallen person. You see, in, in Romans chapter five, Christianity Theology 101, it teaches that by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. I quote that probably once a month. What I don't quote very often is a few verses down in Romans 5, 19. Listen, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, so who's the one man? Adam. So by one man's disobedience, by Adam's disobedience, the many, I'll point at myself too, the many were made sinners. That means that God created Adam perfect and gave him an innocent nature. But then Adam made a choice in the freedom of his will to directly disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. At that moment, his innocent nature became a sinful, depraved nature. Then when he got together with Eve and Eve got pregnant, Adam passed his sin nature to his entire posterity to the entire human race. If you're part of the human race, please raise your hand. <laughs> Some of you are not part of the human race, okay. <laughs> we have aliens that have landed at Calvary Port St. Lucie. All right, and so what does that mean? That means, part of the bad English, all y'all are sinners. And I am too. You know why we're sinners? Because our nature is a sin nature which we receive from Adam. 
I'm, I'm, I'm getting a second master's degree in theology and uh, I had to write a paper last week on Augustine versus Pelagius. And it was very interesting to me that in the early fifth century BC, you had a heretic named Pelagius who taught that all people are born with innocent natures and that Adam's sin only affected Adam, not us, and that we're born with innocent natures and that we can be justified, made right before God by our works. Thank God for men like Augustine, certainly don't agree with everything Augustine said, but he was a man of God. Thank God that he stood against that heresy and told Pelagius, hey bro, read Romans five. By one man, the many were made sinners. Now, if you don't believe that we're all born with a sin nature whose number one attribute is selfishness, let me ask you a question. When a baby is hungry, what does that baby do? Cry and scream. Why? Because it's all about that baby. When two toddlers are playing and one toddler takes a toy from another toddler, what does the toddler who lost the toy do? Right? Take that toy myself. Now, moms and dad, you didn't have to teach your toddler to do that. It came naturally. You didn't have to teach your toddler to lie. You didn't have to teach your kid to hit others. You didn't have to teach your kid to disobey or scream. All those things came naturally. But mom, dad, you do have to teach your kid to be nice, keep their hands to themselves, be honest, obey. Why? Because those things don't come naturally. So Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny that sin nature whose number one characteristic is selfishness. Are you listening? Listen, if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, like authentically, can I see your hand if you wanna follow Jesus? All right, so here's what you do. You deny that selfishness that's in you and I'll do the same thing because it's in me too. We have to deny it. And so here's a really good prayer. When you go to the Lord in your morning devotions, say something like this. Lord, I know I received a sin nature from Adam, but I believe that I am redeemed by the blood of the lamb. I believe that you, Holy Spirit, have come inside of me. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in me. And so today I'm asking that you'll help me make a choice and then live this out. I'm making a choice right now, dear Lord, to put off that old self-centered, selfish mic and to put on the new Christ-centered, selfless mic. And I'm asking you to help me today to walk in newness of life. Man, if you'll do that, it'll be amazing, your spiritual growth. It'll be amazing how many people begin to flock around you because they're attracted, not because you're so good, but because Christ in you is so good and he's living his life through you. Does this make sense to you guys? This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so verse 34, again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And number two, if you're taking notes, here it is. Take up your cross. What does that mean? That means we have to accept rejection and suffering that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Now, sadly, when Jesus said, take up your cross, that was misinterpreted by a lot of people for a lot of years. And so people began to equate taking up your cross with accepting the burdens of life. Lord, 
My husband is my cross. <laughs> he makes me so mad, but I am gonna bear my cross, Lord. Lord, my wife, oh, she nags so much. She's my cross and I'm gonna bear it. Lord, my mother-in-law, she meddles so much, but you know what? I'll take that cross, I'll bear it. Help me, Lord. My job, oh man, tomorrow morning, I gotta go to that place again, but Lord, that's my cross, I'll bear it. Okay, I'm really sorry you feel that way about your husband, your wife, your job, your mother-in-law, but that is not what Jesus is talking about at all. Okay, so when Jesus in his community 2,000 years ago, first century Israel, when he said, you must take up your cross, everybody in that crowd knew exactly what he meant. Here's why, because the Romans had crucified thousands of Jews. And so every single Jew knew that the cross was an instrument of rejection, an instrument of suffering, an instrument of death. And so when Jesus said, you gotta take up your cross, he meant you have to accept rejection and suffering that comes with the territory of being my follower. Not everybody's gonna like it when you follow Jesus. Now, right now in some parts of the world, did you know that government officials are storming churches, arresting pastors, throwing guys like us and our wives into prison, beating pastors, and even killing some Christians? Right now, today, in some of the countries of the world. We don't know that because we're Americans. We live in the bubble. We have the protection of the First Amendment. By the way, how many of you guys are grateful for the First Amendment, right? That, that is an awesome, awesome thing that we have in this country, all right? But you need to know in China, go to Voice of, go to Voice of the Martyrs, read about the persecution of your brothers and sisters in Christ that are happening right now and pray for them. And so, even though we're blessed to live in this free democracy with, covered by the First Amendment, I never have to worry about government officials or police officers storming into this place and arresting me and throwing all of us in prison and burning down. There's, they're burning churches down in China. So even though I don't have to worry about that, here's what you need to know. All of us as Americans, the Bible says, this promise is for everybody, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Everybody, no matter what country you live in, whether you live in a free democracy or a communist country or a godless country or a country that's um, ruled by Sharia law where Christians are being persecuted every day, no matter where you live, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says you will suffer persecution. And so if you begin to actually live openly for Jesus Christ, and by the way, I'm not saying be a jerk, about it, you know, get in people's faces and be challenging. I'm not saying that at all. But if you begin to openly live the Christian life and following Jesus Christ, you need to know that there will be people who will absolutely ridicule you, avoid you, and they're gonna begin to gossip behind your back. So my question is, as you begin to live openly for the Lord and people begin to reject you, are you gonna tone down your testimony? Or are you gonna say, you can think whatever you wanna think. I know I have to stand before the Lord someday, and so I'm living for him. 
right? And so check it out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor. He lived in the 1930s, early 1940s. Okay, this guy lived in Germany and preached while Adolf, Adolf Hitler was ruling. And this guy, instead of toning down his testimony because he was afraid of the Nazis, this guy openly spoke out against the Fuhrer principle in Germany in the 1930s. He openly spoke out against Hitler's euthanasia program. He openly spoke out against the persecution of the Jews. He said, this is not right. He openly spoke out against the compromise of the German state church. He even, very controversial, you can read the book and make your own decision. He even got involved in a secret assassination plot to take out Hitler. A German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it cost him his life. The Nazis arrested him and hung him by the neck in April of 1945, just days before the Germans surrendered to the Allied forces. And so in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says, if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and we have ceased to follow him. That's a powerful statement. I just gotta leave it up there for just a second. And I I gotta ask you, can you personalize those words in this culture of easy believism, in this culture of, you know, I'm gonna use Jesus so he can bless me. In this crazy Christian culture that we live in today that's not preaching the true gospel. Listen to a true man of God. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. And so are you willing when people ridicule you and avoid you and gossip about you, are you willing to just keep living and loving the Lord openly? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself let him take up his cross and let him follow me. And so if you wanna follow Jesus, what do we have to do? Number three, we have to follow him. What does that mean practically? That means that we have to obey God's word. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to say, I'm a follower of Jesus with your lips, but then your life denies that. If you really wanna be a follower of Jesus, what does that mean? That means you commit to obeying the word of God, which by the way means you have to read it so you understand what God wants you to do. And when we read, the God, when we read God's word, here's certain things that God tells us. This by way, by, by no way does this encapsulate within all the New Testament teaching of what followers of Jesus do. This is just some of the fruit of the life of a true follower of Christ. So here's what I'm gonna do this afternoon. I'm gonna go through this list And I want you to just, in your heart, if you're willing, put your defensive walls down and just take a a personal assessment at how, how you're doing, all right? Jesus said, the most important thing of all, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. What does that translate into? That means that God is absolutely number one in your life. 
There's no other person, there's no other passion, there's no other thing that goes like this above your love and commitment for God. He's gotta be first. One of the secrets to a marriage that I have, I'm privileged to be in, 30 years as of next June, is that my wife, I am not number one in my wife's life. Jesus is her number one. And she's not number one in my life. Jesus is my number one. She's number two. She would tell you the same thing if she was up here this afternoon. And when, when you have your priorities right, man, the blessings flow into the marriage or into anything in life. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's one thing to say, hey, I love you, bro. It's another thing to go out of your way and do something that inconveniences you and practically help that person. John said in 1 John 3, 18, dear children, let us not love with words, but with actions. That's a powerful verse. Let's not love with words or in speech, but in actions and in truth. And by the way, let me just say, I wanna say thank you, you know who you are. If you were one of the 200 people that came out on your day off yesterday, inconvenienced yourself, to reach out to the community and show the love of God in practical ways. Thank you so much. Can we put our hands together and thank those people who did that? It's an awesome thing. How are you doing in meditating in the word? Jesus said in John 8, 31, if, can you say if? If you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. All right, so reverse that. If you don't abide in my word, then you're not my disciples indeed, and you won't know the truth, and you will not be set free. And how many Christians are all bound up in whatever sin, and they come in and they want some help, and the first thing that you ask is, hey, how's your relationship with the Lord? What did you get out of your devotions this morning? And there's this awkward silence, why? Because they don't have their devotions. They don't read the word of God on a regular basis. Can we just be honest? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. So if we don't abide in the word, we're not his disciples. Don't, don't fool yourself. The Lord said in Luke 18, one, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And so how's it going with your fellowship with the Lord and your prayer time? Is it just one or two minutes? Or do you talk to him like you talk to your best friend? What would happen, husbands, if you only talk to your wife for one minute a day? Be some problems. But we accept that with our relationship with God. How about church? People were skipping church in the first century, so the Hebrews writer had to say, stop forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Get back to worshiping God together as the church and listening to his word. How about giving? Where, where are you as a financial steward of what God has blessed you with? You say, I, I work for my money. Who gave you the legs and the hands and the brain to think? and to go to work. And so Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits. Can you guys say the word first fruits? First fruits of all your increase. 
so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats with new wine, God's blessing. Okay, and so we believe 100% in this local church in the principle of the tithe. And the reason I, I personally am persuaded about the principle of the tithe is because I'm not a Jew under the law tithing. That's not my mindset at all. I look back 430 years before there was a man named Moses and the law of Moses. And I look at Abraham who tithed in Genesis 14, 20 to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus Christ. So there's a principle of first fruits. There's a principle of the tithe that is in the word of God. Do you give God your leftovers if you can afford it? Or is he the first one you think about when you get that paycheck? And as, as Andrew said earlier, our God is generous and our God is a giver and we're supposed to reflect that as we follow him. How about being a witness? Jesus said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, are you living it with your life and then sharing it with your lips? I personally like that order. I know that sometimes the Lord will speak to your heart and you have to go to a stranger and share your faith. I, I get that. But, but you know what normally what happens is that you live it. Oh man, if Christians would just live it in front of their neighbors, coworkers and friends. And then I was talking to a guy yesterday at Love Your Neighbor he talked about his career in a certain company and he lived it. And then what happened was that people saw his life and his authenticity and his integrity and they began, lost people began to come to him with their burdens and their troubles and their trials. And now the door's wide open, hey, and talk about Jesus. And so don't misunderstand this afternoon. We do not do these things in order to be saved. We do these things because we are saved. The Lord's come in, he's changed our hearts, and this is the fruit that is produced. In verse 35 now, somebody says, you know, pastor, quite frankly, I don't care. You know, just leave me alone. I just wanna live my life. All right, verse 35 is for you. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, the wise way to think is, man, I gotta die. I gotta die to this selfish nature inside of me. I gotta die to this idea that I wanna do whatever I wanna do. Bonhoeffer put it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and what? Die. That's what disciples do. They die to the old man or the old woman and they walk in newness of life, but you gotta die first. It's kind of like sunflower seeds, all right? So if you wanna plant some sunflower seeds this afternoon, I guess you go to Walmart and you get the packet and you start to read the instructions. I have no idea what the instructions say, but let's say you're reading the instructions out loud. Uh, dig a trench. Um, put the seeds in, six inches apart. Cover the seeds, water. And what if you're standing there with a handful of sunflower seeds and you're reading those instructions and when you get to bury the seed, if the seeds begin to shout out, no, 
We don't want to die. Don't bury us. What would you do if the seed started talking to you? You'd be like, ah, right? Now here, here's what you do. Keep holding them while they're talking to you and say, wait, I got something to say to you. Here's what you say to the seeds. If you will just die, you will become so much more than you are now. If you die, this is what will happen to you. You gotta die. You gotta die to what you wanna do. You gotta die to your agenda. You gotta die to your plans. And you gotta say, Jesus, you gave it all for me. I'm yours, I surrender. Do whatever you wanna do through my life. And the problem here is people think, if I surrender to Jesus, I know it, he's gonna call me to some fourth world nation and I'm gonna starve. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. You see, he wants to do that in your life. He's got something so special for your life, a plan that's so beautiful. Are you willing to die? All right, stay with me to the end. We're gonna read through the rest of the chapter and then we're almost done. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark it down, highlight it, circle it in red. Jesus is coming back to this earth. Listen, he's coming back. And when he comes back, this is his words, not mine. He says, if you've been ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I return. But if you will deny yourself, if you'll accept the rejection and suffering that comes with openly following me, if you'll obey my word, and when I come back, you're gonna hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.